Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, August 6th, 2020. I'm broadcasting live from a very stormy Duval County, Florida. Don't wait. Prepare now for the coming battle. At at last report, 10.7% of all mortgages were in some form of delinquency. That means something like 12% of all mortgages are subject to claims of delinquency or forbearance. Be careful of those forbearance agreements because you're admitting the debt exists and you might be admitting that the party with whom you are signing that agreement is entitled to enforce it. As you will hear in this broadcast, they, the debt probably does not exist, and therefore there is no right or authority to enforce it. Millions of tenants, in addition, are facing eviction because they can't pay rent. And the situation is about to get a lot worse when money rent runs out in households that were getting relief from the government. The federal moratorium on evictions and uh, foreclosures expires at the end of this month, August 31st. That moratorium does not mean that you're forgiven during the time that the moratorium was in effect. If there is a valid contract, you still owe the money, and the companies that are trying to enforce those mortgage debts, supposedly, uh, are going to claim that on September 1st if the moratorium does expire, unless it's extended. But whenever it is, it's going to happen. And the longer it is that you're not making payments, the more likely it is, A, that you're going to end up almost immediately in foreclosure, and B, you're going to be unable to bring the payments current although I would argue that you don't owe them the money to begin with. Back in 2006, I joined a chorus of financial analysts and writers where we all correctly predicted that we were heading for a housing crash of unprecedented force. We said the crash in, the, in finance would crash the economy. Nobody acted on that because it was news nobody wanted to hear. But it wasn't hard to predict. By the end of 2006, the number of transactions with homeowners that were reportedly delinquent 
was spiking to ever higher levels. Further analysis showed that it would crash because many of the loans were created to fail, resetting to adjustable payments that were in excess of total household income. Who, why would anyone make a loan like that? Who does that? The answer is nobody. The banks would not do that unless to them it wasn't a loan. Knowing that the payments reset to higher than the entire income of the entire household, they knew the homeowner would have to stop paying, and they knew it before the homeowner transaction was even started. Why would anyone intentionally inflate appraisals to create the illusion of compliance with federal lending laws only to be immediately underwater as soon as the transaction was completed? The answer is they wouldn't. And the further answer is they didn't. They would only create the illusion of a loan so that they could make money doing something else. Something far more profitable than waiting 30 years for payments of interest and principal on a high-risk, toxic transaction. The real answer, hard to understand, almost impossible for people who are not familiar with investment banking, the real answer is that they didn't make a loan. But then they got even more greedy when they pretended as though they had made a loan and that's what started the foreclosure mess and the crash of the American economy in 2008. And to add insult to injury, they are getting foreclosures for profit and never paying a dime to anyone who owns the debt. The pressure is building toward a new tsunami of foreclosures and evictions. Many of you know it is coming because you were already forced to stop making payments because of the pandemic or other things that caused loss of job or loss of income. Many of you are hoping it won't hit you because you're not yet behind in your payments or you have not yet lost your job. And many of you think that it won't affect you because you can still make your payments even if it drains your retirement nest egg. The train is coming, folks. There is no way to stop it unless we all get involved. Some people say we should start a movement like no way we won't pay. If lots of people, enough people did that, yes, it would burst the pimple that we're calling securitization of debt, even though there's no sale of the debt and therefore no securitization of the debt. Maybe in another country, but probably not in a divided USA. I don't think it'll work. I could be wrong. But the, but for those with short memories, let me remind you that if there are millions more foreclosures and millions more evictions, it will affect you. Even if you're rich, home prices will plummet, probably to where they should have been all along. Once you take away the superinflated appraisals promoted by the investment bank, why would they do that? 
The simple fact that lies at the root of most foreclosures is that the underlying obligation was never purchased or sold. Let me repeat that. Your obligation was never purchased or sold. It looked like that was happening, but it didn't happen. In most cases, even the origination of the loan was faked. Yes, you received money or money was paid on your behalf. But in many cases, especially in refinancing, money wasn't even paid on your behalf. It was just a bookkeeping entry that was done from one securitization scheme to another. It enabled them to securitize basically or, or, or claim securitization on the same property. But it did look right, and that's what led homeowners and their lawyers astray as they searched for viable defenses to claims for of foreclosure. This seemingly simple fact is so counterintuitive to almost all lawyers and all homeowners that they refuse to accept it. They refuse to believe it. They don't see how it's possible. So then they go on to defend foreclosures on grounds that are not valid defenses. Let me tell you, if there's a valid loan account, then it's probably enforceable. If there's not a valid loan account, then it can't be enforced. Accept the fact that the debt does not exist on the books of anyone and then litigate aggressively and persistently, and I can tell you, like other lawyers will, that you will win most of the time. The fact that a homeowner receives money is not conclusive, that the reason the homeowner received money is that it was part of a valid loan agreement. You thought that was the reason, but it wasn't. In a nutshell, there is no valid lien. But in order to get to that conclusion, you have to wade through the weeds and smoke screens that have been carefully constructed by Wall Street banks and their lawyers. How do I know this? Because I was an investment banker, literally, on Wall Street. Some people forget that. They think I'm just a lawyer. No. I worked for several brokerage firms, including my own family's brokerage firm, where I headed up investment banking. And I was present, literally present, in the room when the initial discussions occurred where securitization, where the seeds of this type of securitization were planted. I understand this because I was there. I understand it because I'm a competent financial analyst. If lawyers and homeowners want to win cases filed for enforcement of mortgages or deeds of trust, then they must understand and use the fact that the homeowner agreed to two contracts, not one. And frankly, neither one of them is enforceable without the other. And you might say, well, then throw both of them out. Well, you can't do that. Rescission at this point is impossible. And 
not just because the courts won't do it, which is obvious, because even where rescission is effective by operation of law under 1635 uh, of uh, the Truth and Lending Act, it's impossible because the claims of securitization are like the tentacles of an octopus. They reach into dozens of other contracts out in the world of finance. It's impossible to undo them without taking down the whole securitization structure. There's another alternative, and that alternative is reformation. Lawyers will understand that. Lay people, lay people probably won't. Uh, reformation is an equitable doctrine in which the true nature of all the circumstances are taken into consideration and the court creates the contract based upon the evidence. Operating parallel to the apparent loan agreement was a concealed securitization agreement. Both are fatally deficient, unenforceable, unless they are combined into one agreement through the legal, equitable process of reformation. If the two invalid contracts were combined through, through reformation using principles of quasi-contract and quantum merit, this is what you would end up with. A contract to create a loan agreement that did not have a loan account, but which would be treated as if there was a loan account. This would still fall under the Truth in Lending Act and other lending laws and rules. The investment bank would have to disclose the compensation and profits expected to be generated, and the homeowner would be paid money or given credit for undertaking that extra risk that he didn't know about when he entered into the deal to begin with. The risk of entering into a risky securitization scheme in which the homeowner is left with inflated appraisals, which the homeowner in the new contract accepts and does not contest, and in the new contract, the increased likelihood that the loan will either fail or be made to fail by services who are tasked with getting foreclosures for profit of the players. Make no mistake. These foreclosures, if they're conducted in the context of securitization, do not result in the payment of anyone who ever paid value for your debt. Doesn't happen, was never meant to happen, never will happen. If you don't reform the securitization contract to formally include the homeowner, then you are left with a contract without consideration and the securitization scheme fails. Like I said, you can have that. If you don't reform the loan agreement to allow for inclusion of a designee or nominee who would be accepted as though it was a creditor or authorized by a creditor, then the loan contract fails. And most people would agree that shouldn't happen either. Neither one is enforceable under law if the full facts were known but both could be enforceable if they were formed into one contract. 
The loan agreement is fatally deficient because it purposely fails to establish an actual loan account in which the underlying debt is owned as an asset on the financial statements of some person or company. I cannot repeat this often enough. I've been saying it since 2006. I tr- for, for 14 years, I've tried other ways of, of saying it, but the simple fact is that the debt account, the loan account, was retired contemporaneously with the origination of the loan in most cases. Sometimes it was retired with the acquisition of the loan. The accounting entry that creates the loan account can only appear under law and generally accepted accounting principles if the company has been party to some transaction in which it paid value, money, for the debt to someone who owned it and then received a conveyance of ownership from that person. In today's securitization, that transaction never occurs. In double-entry bookkeeping, for those of you who are familiar, it requires a debit or reduction of some asset account and a credit to another asset receivable account. No such entry appears on the books of any company or any person because it was never the intent to create an actual loan where someone was responsible for compliance with federal and state lending and servicing laws. This is how the investment bank funds what appears to be a loan without ever being disclosed as a lender. Since it never receives any conveyance of the debt, note, or mortgage, it is not a lender and therefore not subject to any laws governing lending or servicing, or so they say. In the end, there is no loan account because nobody wants it. And without a loan account, there can be no lender or creditor who has paid value for the underlying debt in exchange for a conveyance of ownership of the debt from someone who owns it. So the loan account does not exist because there is no loan, despite the presentation of what appears to be a loan agreement. If I give you a dead frog and I tell you it's a car, that doesn't change the fact that all you have left is is a dead frog. There is no loan because the debt is contemporaneously retired by the securitization process without any notice or consent from the borrower. You don't end up with a valid loan account or a lender who owns it. The securitization occurs relative to data about the loan, not relative to ownership of the loan. Keep in mind, that there is no loss to anyone when a homeowner stops making payments. And in fact, under current facts and laws, if they were all known and apply, none would be due to any of the players demanding payment. The reason there is no loan account is that nobody who paid anything expected to receive any conveyance of any ownership of the debt, note, or mortgage. And nobody who received a conveyance of the note or mortgage ever paid anything. The outsized bonuses and celebrations on Wall Street came from the fact that they were selling data as though they were selling loans. Investors bought it. Well, some of them, a lot of them. 
and then they got burned. They were able to sell the same debt in effect dozens of times while not creating, while not crediting any loan account, which would have had to have been credited, especially where the loans were insured. Insurance money was paid to the investment bank and not anybody who ever gave value. The securitization agreement is real, even if it is concealed. Without it, there would be no homeowner transaction, and without the homeowner transaction, there would be no securitization scheme or cycle. You can't have one without the other. You can't say it's just a loan because there wouldn't be a loan without securitization, without the money that comes from securitization. And you wouldn't have the money that comes from securitization if you didn't have the homeowner signing documents in what would appear to be a loan transaction. The securitization scheme is fatally deficient because it fails to give consideration, payment, to the homeowner for two things. The first is the homeowner's role in issuing the initial securitization documents, the note and mortgage. And and the second is assuming risks that had been concealed, like inflated appraisals and incentives of the, the investment banks to make bad loans and then bet on the failure of those loans instead of the regular incentive to make good loans and bet on their success. But since it, in fact, funded the transaction but refuses to be considered a lender, the transaction is not a loan, it's something else. Can't have a loan if you don't have a lender. If you don't have a lender, you can't have some third party claim it was a loan. And because it removes every trace of funding through a bogus sale to itself, The investment bank, acting under the name of a fake trust, can't call itself a successor either. In plain language, there was no meeting of the minds and therefore no valid loan contract and no valid securitization contract. This is because of asymmetry of information, in other words, unequal information caused by concealment of the true facts by the investment banks who originated the scheme. The simple truth is that in most cases, the origination of the loan was what we call table funded. That means that the party with whom the homeowner thought they were dealing was not a lender. But in common practice and jurisprudence, a table funded loan may be cause for a variety of defenses and claims but it does not invalidate the entire transaction if the transaction was part of a valid loan agreement. My point is there is no valid loan agreement because there was no loan. Remember, there is no loan agreement, and there's no formal loan agreement in residential transactions with homeowners. The agreement is presumed based upon multiple documents laws, rules, and regulations governing such transactions. It is not so far-fetched to also reach for whatever else was included in the transaction 
including especially securitization, even if it was concealed, and maybe especially if it was concealed. So unknown to the homeowner, at the end of the day, there is no own account. And various parties are going to be designated to be presented as though, if you're hearing noise, it's because I have thunder here. Various parties are going to be nominated or designated to be presented as though they were owners of the non-existent loan account and that they have authority to administer, collect, and enforce the obligation. The authority, they presume, comes from the designee, the nominee. But that designee or nominee doesn't have that authority or power to grant. And that's how cases are won and lost in foreclosure. In other words, in order to try to enforce the obligation for profit, since the obligation has already been satisfied by securitization, the players have to pretend to resurrect the debt through a series of fictitious transactions memorialized in false documentation. The problem that emerges for the foreclosure mills is that when it comes time to enforce, they have an insurmountable problem which can only be covered over by making false statements and using fabricated documents. The reason that there is no valid lien is that the only way the lien can be valid is if it is security for a promise made by the homeowner to either the actual lender or an actual representative of the lender. But the Wall Street banks, in their effort to avoid any liability for lending violations, made absolutely sure there would be no connection between the originator as a sham conduit for documentation and either the banks or the investors. In fact, they boasted about this disconnect as a sales tool to get investors to buy certificates. The normal practice before securitization was that through judicial doctrine, through, through the judicial doctrine of merger, the execution of the promissory note was treated as a legal fiction. The underlying debt was said to merge into the promissory note, thus avoiding the problem of having the maker of the note suddenly create two liabilities from one transaction. Receiving the money might automatically create the presumption that something is owed by the homeowner, even without a written instrument. And executing a note and mortgage might also create a liability, even without any payment to the homeowner or for the homeowner. But... It still works because that's the way the UCC works for notes and other negotiable instruments. So the debt could arise by virtue of receiving money, and another debt arises by virtue of executing the note and mortgage. So then the mortgage was executed to secure the promises contained within the promissory note. It was all very neat little package that has worked for centuries. It worked because the mortgage or deed of trust was securing both the underlying debt 
and the promissory note at the same time, so the mortgage lien is valid and enforceable. The reason the courts allowed enforcement of table-funded loans is the assumption that the person who paid the homeowner eventually became the owner of the uh, uh, product issued by the homeowner, the note and mortgage. Therefore, the foreclosure would go to repaying the party who paid for the debt. Why go through a procedure of proving what everyone else knows to be true? But securitization produces the opposite of that assumption, and therefore that assumption should not be applied. Nobody ever pays the homeowner in exchange for receiving a conveyance of ownership over the debt note or mortgage. It just looks that way. Nobody has ever paid value as part of the securitization cycle has ever received a conveyance because that would make them a lender and they don't want to be a lender. So that's it for tonight, folks. If you want the rest of my notes on tonight's topic, write to me at Neil F. Garfield um, at hotmail.com. Have a good night. We'll see you next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.